Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in our final episode of 2017, we'll be discussing the Damien Green saga and reviewing the year for the Conservatives, Labour and the British economy. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, editorial director, Robert Shrimsley, chief political correspondent, Jim Picard, economics editor, Chris Giles, economics correspondent, Gemma Tetlow, plus former Labour advisor, John McTurnan. Thank you all for coming. And it was all going so well for Theresa May. The budget went off without a hitch. Sufficient progress was being granted in the Brexit talks. And then on Thursday evening, she had to force Damien Green, her deputy, to hand in his resignation. Not over sexual harassment allegations, but over lying in two statements about an incident with the police in 2008. This posed a bigger question for the Prime Minister. Is she going to reach for her government? And does she end 2017 on a good or bad year for the Conservative Party? So, George Parker, let's begin with the Damien Green saga, which has been very convoluted and has been going on for a lot of time. We were actually wondering, was she going to resolve it by the end of this year? But later, 8.40pm on Thursday evening, there was an exchange of letters between the Cabinet Office and Downing Street. And Damien Green said that very reluctantly he was resigning. So, first of all, can you explain why he had to resign? Why do you think he should have resigned? Well, I don't think he really resigned. He was sacked. I think we should call a spade a spade here. And um, he said he was very upset that he'd been asked to resign, which gives the game away a bit. Well, look, the inquiry was into two things. There were the, there were allegations of inappropriate behaviour made by Kate Mulby, a Tory activist, against Damien Green, uh, which was investigated by the Cabinet Office. And they said that her account was plausible, but it came to no firm conclusion on that. Then there was a separate case relating to um, a police raid on his parliamentary offices back in 2008, where police looking into a totally different issue, discovered... It was leaking, if I remember, from the Home Office. They were, they were looking into leaks from the Home Office, and Damien Green at the time was an opposition Conservative spokesman on Home Affairs. The police made, made a very controversial raid on his offices, and in the course of their inquiries, they discovered, they say, some pornography, legal pornography, on Damien Green's computers, and then ex-police officers allowed this information to get into the public domain later on. Now, Damien Green was asked about this. The Sunday Times had a report saying that the police had found this pornography on his computer, and he essentially said he knew nothing about this, and that turned out to be untrue. And as with all these things, it's often the cover-up rather than the original offence. And it's still a bit of a mystery, frankly, to Damien Green's supporters of why he just didn't you know, be frank about the whole thing at, at the outset, and maybe he could have seen it through. But as a result, he was deemed to have breached the ministerial code, which says that ministers have to be truthful. Prime Minister felt he hadn't been truthful. Uh, if he hadn't been truthful on that, well, there are other areas where he may, may have been untruthful. And in the end, Downing Street said she had no choice other than to sack him under the ministerial code. Robert Shimmersley, one of the things that I found quite odd is how insistent Damien Green has been about not resigning. If you think about Priti Patel and Michael Fallon, who were two other cabinet ministers who fell on their swords for various misdemeanours in recent months, and they went quite quickly, whereas this has been very drawn out. And it's obviously problematic because Damien Green is a very old friend of the prime minister's, is her enforcer in a way, sits on nine sub-cabinet committees. So he, she was obviously reluctant to lose 
lose him. But as George said, he had to be sacked. Does show a certain lack of contrition? Well, that's one possible explanation. Another is that she wanted to be seen to sack him rather than have him resign because it looks stronger. I mean, I don't know. I have to say I'm a little bit suspicious of this line that the reason he's had to go is because he didn't admit that he, his solicitor had told him about the porn allegations and therefore that he'd misled Parliament and uh, his colleagues by not by saying he didn't know about this. That seems just like a rather elegant dismount. It feels to me like it's a lot easier to say I've resigned over that than because I had an absolute ton of pornography on my computer. It allows a bit more dignity in your departure. So I don't know if, if, if that's the real source of this. I think he clung on as long as he possibly could. She wanted him to stay. He desperately wanted to stay. He hoped that this report would get him off the hook. It didn't. Mm. And I, th- I think the problem, obviously, here as well, George, for um, Theresa May, is that um, she doesn't like to do reshuffles because the cabinet is such a fine balance at the moment. And one of the immediate impacts of Damien Green going back to the backbenches is another Brexit mutineer, that he is a lifelong Europhile in the Ken Clark variety. And I'm sure it will not take long for him to make his views known, which will probably be somewhat <coughs> different uh, to the government's. Yes, that's right. Um, Any reshuffle in the current political climate is very difficult for the Prime Minister. And in the uh, Cabinet Committee, which considers Brexit issues, it was finally balanced with a slightly slight majority to those who wanted to diverge from the EU rulebook. And with Damien Green's departure, that will be an even stronger balance in favour of the sort of the harder Brexiters, if you like, on that committee. Doing a reshuffle is always dangerous for a Prime Minister in her precarious position because you make as many more enemies than you gain friends by doing a reshuffle. If you were to look at, this, look at this from the positive point of view, from the Prime Minister's point of view, I think they were looking to do a reshuffle in the new year, building on a bit of momentum that they appeared to be building up towards the end of this year. And I think she will use this as a chance to not necessarily bring fresh faces into the cabinet, because you know, the, the, the ranks of middle-ranking ministers are not particularly well-equipped with attractive or even um, potentially promising. They're all male, basically, middle-aged white males on the middle ranks. But I think she will try to bring in members from the intake from 2015 and 2010 and particularly more female faces into the lower ranks ranks of the government well, obviously it's an interesting point that you know we don't actually need a first secretary of state it's not a job that has to be filled so she has some flexibility here i would actually be interested to see whether she isn't tempted to go rather than for a fresh face but for a stale face and actually say i'm going to pick somebody who's political career was thought to be over, someone I can trust who's post-ambition, perhaps someone from the House of Lords, just a a really experienced political operator can come in and be my point person in cabinet committees and things like that. But it just strikes me it would be the kind of way out of this on pass. I think the suggestion is that, she, as Robert says, the the job doesn't need to be filled. It's a first secretary of state. It's a job she created for Damien Green in the aftermath of that election in June. And the, the hints I'm picking up is that it's quite likely she won't replace him with a like-for-likes or de facto deputy prime minister. But she probably will need an old hand, as Robert says, in there sort of doing that fixing job at the heart of the government. Some people have talked about Jeremy Hunt, the health secretary, as being one possible possibility. It was notable that he was the minister sent out to be the safe pair of hands on the Today programme the day after Damien Green was sacked. So she has a very high regard for Jeremy Hunt. She thinks he's done a good job on the National Health Service in difficult circumstances. We're obviously playing with fire here because something may happen before <laughs> listeners hear this podcast. But just to pick up on some of the other names going around, so there was this suggestion that Theresa May wanted to bring back William Hague, now mm. Lord Hague from the House of Lords, which I think makes an awful lot of sense. But I have no idea why William Hague would necessarily want to do that job at a very risky time. You know, he's been a very much a sort of a sage of the Conservative Party through his Telegraph column now um, and he would risk his reputation by getting stuck into the rough and tumble of a government within a very 
difficult year. There's also talk that she might give the title to Amber Rudd or mm. Michael Gove. Um, but I think it seems more like you say, George, that they would bring someone else into the cabinet office and just give the first secretary of state to a trusted hand. Yes, I think that's right. Well, William Hague has said explicitly he doesn't want to do this. And it's certainly true that uh, approaches were made to William Hague about making a return. And he was being urged by some of his supporters to come back and do his bit for the country. But I think he says it, he made it clear in his Telegraph column that he's been there, done that, doesn't want to go back in. The one thing I'd just say about the Downing Street operation is that when Damien Green was brought back in as this sort of fixer in the in the Cabinet office just after the June election, the whole, whole house was falling down around Theresa May's ears. You know, Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, her former co-chiefs of staff, had been sacked. Um, she had no one she could really trust. The whole thing was a complete shambles. Damien Green came in. Now, in the following six months, I think there's been a bit more stability in the number 10 operation, partly to do with Damien Green, but also some of the other hires she's got in there. So Robbie Gibb, who came in from the BBC, has been very good as a link man with the Tory right. She's also got Gavin Barwell in as her chief of staff, a much respected uh, Tory MP. James Slacker, head of media, is also someone part of that inner core. So it's stabilised. And the other thing I would say very quickly is the relationship between number 10 and number 11 Downing Street, between the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, has also improved a lot since the election. At the time of the election, it was absolutely poisonous. The fact there was a successful budget means that the whole centre of government feels a bit more stable. And I think it can probably survive Damien Green's departure, certainly a lot better than it could have done three or four months ago. Robert, as our last podcast of 2017, we're just going to have a very quick look back on what kind of year it's been for the Conservative Party. You know, when we began... It's been a triumph. It's been a triumph, Sam. <laughs> it's all been going so well. At the beginning of 2017, they obviously began at a very high standing that Theresa May was streets ahead of Labour in the polls. She out, she laid out her hard Brexit vision at Lancaster House, triggered Article 50, then had triggered a snap general election. Then it sort of gradually went downhill, culminating in sort of the, the low point was probably her conference speech where um, everything fell around uh, down around her literally and it somewhat picked up a little bit towards the end here what's your take on how 27 been is for the Tories well as it's been a game of two halves Gary hasn't it <laughs> I think it's fair to say that the Tories are in an absolutely terrible place though they were in a terrible place even at the beginning of the year they just didn't quite realize it yet they had no money essentially no majority and the biggest constitutional problem probably since the Irish question and all that's fundamentally happened this year is that that has played out. The majority, with one with one difference, which is that the majority has actually disappeared entirely and that the lion's share of the blame for that goes to Theresa May for calling an election and not managing to win it well. We all get very excited by things like, you know, ministerial resignations and reshuffles and stuff like this. Actually, the attrition rate for Theresa May's cabinet is probably not massively worse than a lot of other premiers. There have been quite a few in a row, it's worth saying. And the truth is... These things only really point up the weaknesses or strengths that already exist. If this had happened to Tony Blair at his strongest, he'd have completely sailed through it. We all have written very excitedly about it, but actually he'd have moved on. The point is, she's not weak because these things are happening to her. She's weak. And consequently, when things go wrong, it just looks all the worse. She is weak, although... As I think I've said before on this podcast, in a way, her weakness is her strength. The Tory party has decided to fall in behind her. They they know that um, if you punch her too hard, she will fall over and there will be a the disaster will descend on the Tory party. There'll be a chaotic leadership contest, possibly an election and possibly a Labour victory. So no matter how many blows she takes, she is safe, I think, until March 2019 uh, when Brexit happens and that ministers and Tory MPs are planning for a leadership contest soon after that. So gradually her authority will wane even more as the succession speculation begins in earnest in 2018. Nevertheless, 
I think probably at the end of this year, she can probably see a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. They've executed a budget without it falling apart. They've completed the first phase of the Brexit talks without it being a total fiasco. And I think probably just talking to people in the real world, there's almost a bit of sneaking admiration for this prime minister who, despite everything, despite losing her voice at the conference and everything falling down around her, just keeps ploughing on. So I suspect there might be a little bit of a New Year bounce for her. But, you know, she's got 18 months left in number 10 at the best. I mean, I do think it's also important to look at this in the bigger picture for the Conservative Party. I mean, George is right. And I do think the polls suggest that she's more popular than anybody else in the Conservative Party. And the public do have at least some respect for her in that sense. But the fundamentals are the Conservative Party is moving away from the country. You know, the younger voters, you have to be un, you have to be over 50 before you're more likely to vote Conservative. They're losing younger voters. They're losing cosmopolitan city dwellers because of Brexit. They are losing all kinds of people because they are moving away from illiberal, moving towards more illiberal values. And the bigger problem for the Conservative Party is they may be able to hold it together for a couple of years, but with every year they hold it together, they actually probably deepen the bigger electoral trough that they're in. And I think this is the real challenge for for next year because, as I think it makes total sense, George, that they want her to stay until the middle of 2019 because if you add a leadership contest, it would throw the Brexit talks into chaos and who knows how it could span out there. But I think you will see more and more of people who have got leadership ambitions. And there's at least, I think, 30 MPs I could think of who all have um, plans to launch leadership bids at some point over the next couple of years. And they will start to set up their store on how they will tackle those problems Mm. that Robert says there. But I think the ultimate question for the Conservatives is still going to be Brexit. And 2018 is really going to be the difficult year because, as you said, there are these big divides. They've kind of papered over the cracks in a way. And Theresa May has managed to sell quite a lot of compromises over Brexit this year. But next year, that's going to get harder and harder as people get more hardline in their positions in terms of what they want to see from the deal. And then obviously at the end of 2018, Theresa May's got to sell that deal, not to the party, but to Parliament too. Yes, that's right. The the cabinet discussions that have been held in the last couple of weeks where we thought there would be a big clash between those who, not want, who want to stay close to the EU, who want to diverge, it didn't happen because actually everyone was able to rally behind the idea that we should aim for the best possible outcome in the best possible worlds and sail on. But the fact is that the, the big crunch will come at the point where they have to make a choice between the offer that's on the table from the EU and something else. And that's when the tough decisions will be taken. I wouldn't minimise what she's achieved so far, though, on Brexit. And people, it's a commonplace for people like me to say the, set, the next bit will be harder than the first bit. The first bit was pretty hard. They had to talk about money. They had to get over the hump about whether there was going to be a deal or no deal. And they had to swallow the idea of a transition deal for two years or so entirely on the European Union's terms. Those are quite big things for the Tory party to swallow. So it's been tough so far. You're right, it could get tougher. And, of course, she's got this vote sort of sometime around this time next year, which could be quite tricky when the House of Commons votes and whether it accepts the deal or not. So final before final word to Robert, I just remember of a May supporting MP spun me this narrative about how actually it could end up all right for Theresa May in the end. She could be with a better legacy than David Cameron, that if she ensures a smooth Brexit, so we exit not chaotically, there's no economic shock, the economy keeps growing, she holds the party together and holds the United Kingdom together, and actually she might leave with a slightly better reputation than David Cameron. Well, if... I, mean, I, I, I think it's probably worth saying that if she manages to execute a Brexit with no economic shock or a minimal economic shock, then it is probably not much of a Brexit. Then we have probably chosen to stay in almost everything. And as the IMF reported, and we've already had a 15% devaluation of our currency, which has made food in the shops considerably more expensive. Inflation is going up. So we've already had an economic shock. If she does all those things, well, then maybe we'll look back at her 
more kindly than we currently do, but let's get there first. So if it's been a turbulent year for the Conservative Party, it's not been any less quiet for the Labour Party. It began at a pretty low point with it dragging behind the Conservatives in the polls, and then suddenly... Theresa May called a snap election and Labour got 40% in the polls. A very high rating and proved all the doubters of Jeremy Corbyn wrong. Or is that not the case? Have we reached peak Corbyn and what lies ahead for the party next year? So Jim Picard is someone who's reported on all the ups and downs of Labour over the past 12 months. And obviously Team Corbyn are pretty happy about where they're at because everybody said they couldn't win, they were going to take mm. the party into electoral oblivion and now they're neck and neck, if not ahead of the Conservatives in the polls. And some feel even though they didn't technically win June's election, they won the moral victory. Yeah, I mean... It- Ever since that election result in June, Corbyn has been on a kind of honeymoon and that has been both with his MPs who have been very, very reluctant to criticise him ever since that night that we got the exit poll. They've been kind of silenced and the media to a great degree. We've been forced to swallow our words about Corbyn being unelectable and it was impossible for someone on on that left-wing uh, end of the Labour spectrum to to do well in an election, so he he's kind of walking on air in one sense. And you know, let's go back to this point of what an amazing David and Goliath journey it's been. This was someone who, when they had the uh, Ed Miliband step down two years ago, and they had a debate about who would run, and Jeremy Corbyn was sort of stepped forward. Even his own mates thought it was an absurd proposition. You know, let's not beat around the bush. It wasn't just the establishment who thought it was bizarre. His own friends and allies thought. I suppose it's Jeremy's turn, he's got no hope, and all the rest of it. But unlike David and Goliath, he hasn't yet killed the enemy. The enemy is still running the country. So before we get too carried away, let's just go back to that fundamental point. Indeed, John McTurnan, as a former Corbyn sceptic, as somebody who felt that he was going to drive Labour to ruin, how do you feel about where he's at and the party is at the end of 2017? Well, you have to say that there's one uh, very real sense in which uh, Jeremy Corbyn won the general election, which was that Theresa May went in with a 20-point lead, seeking a mandate for her interpretation of the referendum as hard Brexit. And she was deprived of her 20-point lead. She was deprived of her majority, and she was deprived of her mandate. And really, that's when all the troubles uh, which uh, we have seen since the election started. Because with a mandate, with a majority, we would be in a different situation uh, in the Commons. We now know the Commons has a majority against a lot of what the government are proposing. They look weak and weakened. And we can see that Theresa May has been kept in place only because of the Conservative fear that Jeremy Corbyn will be the next Prime Minister, which marks a remarkable turnaround uh, in fortunes uh, for, for, for Jeremy. I would say he is the cause of a lot of it. He clearly has a charisma which escaped me uh, when uh, I was working for Tony Blair and escaped me when he, when he ran for leader. He made connections with the public because he talked about issues that they care about, housing, which is very, very close to them, student debt. He engaged young people in a, in a new way, but he also engaged their parents. Uh, you, don't, you don't win Kensington uh, only on a student vote. You don't win Canterbury only on a student vote. You don't win Hove only uh, on a student vote with a massively increased majority. You don't win uh, Ilford North West, West uh, Streetings uh, constituency without the cabbies voting uh, for Corbyn as well as for uh, as well as for Wes. So there is something going on in the country. For me, Corbyn remains 
the symptom, uh, not the cause, but there's a deep unrest among people about the way the country is, the way the country's running, the way the economy is structured. He's tapping into that, and I think any, I think the irony, if we go back to Jim's point, even Corbyn's mates didn't think that he could do this. But the wise people around Corbyn, uh, of whom the wisest I think is Seamus Milne, understand that Corbyn is a special character in politics. John McDonnell, as leader of the Labour Party, would not have done uh, as well in a general election. Why is that? John McDonnell's not likeable. Uh, Corbyn's very likeable. It's deeper than Corbyn's likeable, but there's but there's something about him. Yeah, there was that moment when he appeared on The One Show, do you remember, just before the election, probably about a week out, and he was so relaxed, and he was mm. talking about his allotments and his vegetables, and he had a kind of twinkle in his eye, and he just came across as a, a very likeable person. And people saw the kind of tsunami of attack mm. journalism in the Daily Mail and elsewhere, a lot of it quite accurate, to be honest, talking about his links with violent Irish Republicans back in the 1980s and all the rest of it. But they saw the guy out there giving his speeches and appearing on telly and they just didn't really connect the two. They yeah. they just kind of discounted a lot of the stuff, mainly because it was in the past and he was looking ahead and he was promising to put a load of money towards things and to sort out the welfare state and all the rest of it. And I mean, one thing you didn't mention a second ago mm. was, was austerity now been going on for seven mm. years. And you know, people I know who work in the public sector, they didn't really complain about the pay freeze for the first yeah. few years. And then they got a bit irritated yeah. by the pay freeze. And after more than half a decade of it, they really are quite quite sick of it. And he managed to tap into that. That, 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 look, that's, that, that is a really good point. And I think the Corbyn election result in 2017 shows that Ed Miliband was prematurely correct. Ed uh, Miliband gambled that the public were sick and tired of austerity. He was 18 months wrong. And I, I think it was a, a Cameron Corbyn error, a Cameron, a Cameron and uh, Osborne error, uh, that the appetite for austerity would go on and on and on. And I think we saw in that election, you know, no one talks about austerity anymore. And that's not just a victory for Corbyn, it's a, it's a victory for Millibandism. Now, I just want to throw in a potential question here, which is one that has begun to emerge from us in the mainstream media of late, Jim, which is about have we reached peak Corbyn? Um, because obviously the wave of enthusiasm surrounding mm -hmm. Mr Corbyn, which some people here are sharing, is it reached its peak when he appeared at the Glastonbury mm -hmm. Music Festival in the summer and there were hundreds of thousands of people chanting and cheering his name, often to the tune of Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes. Mm -hmm. Is there a sense, the longer that he's opposition leader the longer he has to deal with the complexities of Brexit of managing his party and also of someone who I think by all accounts is not a natural leader that will begin to take its toll and maybe 2018 might be the year where things just unravel a little bit yeah and I think the place to start with this is that expectation mm. management is a crucial to this whole phenomenon and yes he totally defied the critics and beat expectations and all the rest of it but let us not forget, he still lost the election. He or his party would still need to gain, they still need to take 30 seats off the Tories just to be in the precarious position that Theresa May is in now, let alone have a majority, let alone have a decent majority, and let alone have the enormous majority that Tony Blair enjoyed back in 1997. So just because he smashed mm -hmm. everyone's expectations doesn't mean that he's poised to seize power. And I think a lot of people have expected there to be uh, another general election very quickly or imminently, especially un under the weight of Brexit and all the rest of it. I think it's quite conceivable that Theresa May just struggles on all the way through to, to 22. I mean, she's proved that she's a trooper. 
I mean, or may, maybe she hands over in 19 or 20, but I think the Tories in general could make it to the end of this parliament. And by then you have a Jeremy Corbyn who would not only have been the leader for seven years, but also would be, I think, 72. It turned and, 70 in and 2019. He, yeah, so he would be asking basically to be prime minister until the age of 77. And so when you look at it through that prism, is it really that likely that the British public will, will give him the mandate? And secondly, just in terms of brand... The, the Corbyn brand was kind of sexy when he was this like lone character, like sort of Gandalf with his orb fighting off the sort of hordes of Tories, red Tories, Blairites and all the rest of it. In a weird kind of way, momentum put on the most members when MPs were attacking Corbyn. And now that they aren't really bothering and they're just sat there in a kind of sullen silence, it does make it harder for him to, to appear kind of dynamic and exciting, mm. I would say. I think there's two points to make about that. The first is that Jim really accurately set out what the Tory strategy is, which is basically macabreism, hoping that something will turn up. And the problem about hoping that something will turn up is, as John Major knows, quite often something turns up and it's really, really bad. <laughs> um, it's like falling out of the ERM. And if you don't control your destiny, somebody else controls it for you. And when you look at the fact that the Tories' best idea to win back the youth vote from, from Corbyn was to increase the uh, youth rail card to the age of 30, you can tell there's something intellectually bankrupt about the party. That's the first thing to say. And the second thing is, I don't think we've seen the end of Corbyn as a popular political figure. And it's because of this, because he is it's a populist and a populist of the left. And populism has a great, a great important strand to it, which we often ignore when we attack the populist policies, the content of them. He's an optimist. His manifesto was put forward to the country to say, there is a problem with housing, but we can solve it. There's a problem with student debt, the burden on our young people, it, but it can be solved. He would articulate a problem and then say you could solve it. And I think that has got a great attraction to people who think the system is unfair and want a solution. And I think what's particularly interesting about that is that the numbers and all this are so big that it makes it really hard for the Tories to look like they're doing anything. So Theresa May came out at a Tory conference and announced a couple of billion extra for social housing, and we very quickly worked out this amounts mm. to 5,000 new social homes mm. a year. Compared to the yardstick Labour has set, which is a million homes, ditto tuition fees, they can play around with various thresholds and interest rates and everything else. But compared to no tuition fees, their offering is always going to look a, li a little bit feeble. And... Before people started saying, ah, but Labour's unfunded and all the rest of it, what was really striking about the manifesto, and I think we said mm. at the time, was that apart from the nationalisations where mm. the funding mm. issue is a bit shaky, when it comes to the day-to-day -day spending, they costed it. They put up a huge amount of corporation tax on business. Yeah. They were going to land high earners with a whole new income tax and all the rest of it. And you can have a, a debate about whether that's a good idea or not or whether it would damage the economy. But their money for the public services was funded. But I suppose on the other hand, John, this is all going to mm. come down to Brexit, much like oh, yeah. it would for the Conservatives. Yeah. And Labour, very bluntly in that election, sat on the fence. It had its constructive ambiguity mm. position, which sounded a bit more Remaining to win across a lot of voters, mm. but Brexity enough mm. to keep us as provincial voters. Corbyn hasn't really sat on the fence there. And as we, Jim and I were sort of saying, there's a certain sense of trajectory that Labour is mm. moving gradually towards a softer Brexit approach. The Keir Starmer, yeah. the spokesman, has said that Labour was still in the customs union and the single market during transition, and the door is being opened to staying in them all the time. Now, that may turn mm. into full-on soft Brexit 
in the new year. Do you think that's a good strategy or do you think that risks this big question of alienating a lot of its traditional voting bases if it's seen as a party that is not taking back control and not reducing migration? Look, I think the thing that I've admired the most about uh, Corbyn post the election is the strategy on Brexit. It is clearly a strategy. Um, the fundamental uh, core of it is Napoleon's observation, never interrupt your enemy when they're making a mistake. Why should the Labour Party, which is not in government, clarify what its position would be if it were in government? If the Tories want to know what Labour would do in government, they can give the keys of number 10 to Corbyn right now and they can find out. Otherwise, why not stay silent? You get people like us talking about this on podcasts, we get columnists moaning about it. The public don't notice and the public don't care because Labour say nothing. If Labour says something, they become the story. Labour say nothing, the Tories are the story. And I think just the... The important thing, I think, that's understated from the election is it took Cameron a very long time to detoxify the Tory brand. It didn't take Theresa May very long with grammar schools and fox hunting and a number of her obsessions to retoxify the Tory brand. And I would say, if I was Labour, I'd be very positive about the general election. Canterbury, Kensington, the close vote in Worthing, the votes in, in Hove and Brighton, they show you that the southeast of England is much more like London than we anticipated or thought. And the votes in the north show that basically working class voters hate the Tories more than they hate the European Union. That's a potent uh, potential coalition for Corbyn, and that's why his strategy has been so successful. So it's obviously politically a good strategy, Jim, but it's not exactly leading public opinion on this at such a crucial time for the country. Yeah, I mean, John was saying they kind of have... They're not saying anything on Brexit. I'd say it's more that they're saying everything to everyone. <laughs> so if you want to be in the customs union, then Labour's saying, yeah, we'd like to be in a customs union. If you don't want to be in the customs union, Labour's saying, oh, we're not going to be in the customs union. <laughs> if you don't like free movement, great, because they don't want free movement either. They want easy movement, which will also re reassure a lot of the Remainers. They're not saying they want a Norway model. They're saying they want a new Norway for the 21st century. And there are even people out there, including Tom Watson, saying we should have a, a, a second referendum, which is obviously not Labour's position. So they're just throwing chaff everywhere and you can make of it what, what you want. And at the same time, their MPs are giving different views on the ground, which you saw in June. You saw some literally mm. incredible <laughs> Remainers, but also Leavers doing their own thing. And then at the same time, you have this general kind of them saying... Well, Brexit's quite boring. Most of us find it a bit boring. It's a bit technical. So we are much more focused on public services and bread and mm -hmm. butter issues. And all that this. went well, well the Tories in June, are, yeah. The Tories are obsessing with Brexit and all the rest mm. of it. But the only two caveats, I mean, it's worked so far. We might have a bit of a shift in the new year towards, especially on the customs union front. The one thing I would say is that if the election is 2022, the next one, and it may not be, and the Tories have a new leader mm. and Corbyn's starting to look a, a little bit stale by then, what we don't know is, is, firstly, we would imagine the Tories will have a much more generous offer than they did this year. So on certain things, they might try and match Labour much more than they did this time. Mm. And secondly, what will be really interesting is when you take Brexit out of the equation, will some of the tactical voting we saw this year, because let's not forget a lot of, the, a lot of it was tactically people who might have voted Lib Dem or, or otherwise going for Labour because they have more chance of exerting pressure on the government. When that unravels, we have no idea how it'll play out. Very finally, briefly, John, are we going to see Prime Minister Corbyn? Oh, definitely. Prime Minister Corbyn will be the Prime Minister of a minority government asked by the Queen to form a government when the current Tory government collapses. And Jim? There will only be a Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn of the mind, not actually in number 10.
And finally, onto the British economy for this year. While politically everything has been quite up and down, the economy has bumped along. There's been no big economic shocks after the Brexit has begun to turn its wheels. But the question is, how strong are those fundamentals? How much is going to change in 2018? And will there finally be a much bigger impact from the vote to leave the EU? So Chris Giles, you wrote a very um, interesting piece for the FT about this very topic here, because there were obviously those predictions of great economic shocks after the Brexit vote, so-called Project Fear, which didn't happen. But a lot of the other things that the were predicted to do with sterling and investment and immigration have actually happened. So just give us a summary picture of where the UK economy is at the end of 2017. Well, I think you put it quite well saying it bumped along in 2017. In fact, it did rather as people at the end of 2016 thought it would, that the fast growth in the two quarters after the referendum vote couldn't continue because sterling's fall was going to increase import prices and that was going to squeeze household finances. All that's happened, inflation's gone up to 3.1% and that and then wages haven't followed. So that's been the sort of the big news. So growth has been pretty anemic this year. It's going to be about 1.5%, 1.6%. That is quite low and it's a slowdown from last year. Labour market hasn't seen anything at all. We've got again, we've got unemployment at a forty-three-year low. So we're not. No one's which losing, is incredible. Which is incredible. We're, no one's losing their jobs. All of that is fine. It's just that people are not getting better off, and so there, there's a squeeze on their finances. So it has been a bit of a bumpy. Uh, not great year and when you compare it what's going on in the rest of the world or with what people thought was possible before the referendum it's been quite a bad year so we've probably lost just a little bit less than one percent of national income so far pretty much as a direct result of the referendum outcome and that's about 18 billion quid or to put it into a newsy term 350 million pounds a week Indeed, it's a good headline to get on that. Yeah. Um, Gemma Tetlow, we obviously had the sterling devaluation that followed after the Brexit vote last June. What's been the impact of that? Because that's obviously had an impact on imports and exports and, and obviously many factors off the back of that. We've started seeing it feed through into the shop prices. So as Chris said, we've seen prices in shops go up by 3.1% over the past year. That's pretty rapid growth and much faster than people's wages have been going up. For businesses, there have been some apparent positives. There has been stronger demand for UK exports. The manufacturing sector has been doing relatively well this year. Now, when we look at the global context here, Chris, obviously one of the big arguments behind Brexit was the UK was shackled to a corpse and the Eurozone was dragging. It's not really been dragging so much this year, which is obviously in, as Gemma said, because of exporters in return helped the UK economy. Yes, yeah, so the Leave campaign said that uh, only Antarctica was growing for, uh, slower than the Eurozone, which was obviously another inc- entirely incorrect figure that the Leave campaign put out at the time of the referendum. The Eurozone's had a very good year. It's finally into a sustained recovery. It's grown faster than the US in 2016, faster than the US almost certainly in 2017. Forecast for 2018, put it on about of a par with the US. Uh, it depends a lot on what the impact of Trump's tax cuts has on the US. Doesn't mean that the Eurozone has this sort of quite rapid growth forever because 
the potential for the eurozone to grow fast at this sort of rate isn't there forever because at the moment unemployment in the eurozone is coming down very quickly and when it gets to a position where you're at sort of full employment then which is still two or three years off for the eurozone then you'd expect them to slow a bit now i think the buzzword for british economy this year Gemma, has been productivity and the productivity puzzle and essentially the fact that wages just aren't really growing that quickly at all or even in the slightest so what where is, where is the UK on productivity and the government's obviously got various programmes and things in train to try and address that. What do you make of it and do you think there's going to be any practical change in this in 2018? Productivity is how much workers in the UK can produce for each hour that they work. And 2017 has been a really bad year for news on that front for the UK. In 2016, productivity actually grew relatively quickly, a bit of a pick up in pace. In 2017, that's actually gone into reverse. And we've, we saw a decline in productivity through to the middle of 2017. That's bad news for the UK economy. It's bad news for people's wages, because they're not going to get paid more if they don't produce anymore. And it's bad news for the public finances in the longer term, which was the big story out of the recent budget. Looking forwards, there is it's difficult to see where a big pickup in productivity is going to come from. As you said, the government does have a few initiatives on this, but it's unlikely that those are going to produce anything very much in the short term. Yeah, I mean, the the, the thing about policy for productivity is that if you are massively successful, and in the end, different countries have policies that are good or bad for productivity, it's very, very long term. So if, we, if Mr Hammond's policies to pick up productivity, and a lot of that's greater public investment we shouldn't skills and that skills. sort of thing but there, there is proper money going into science and investment it is it is not something to to say to say it's not just spin that there's money there is this is actually quite a lot of money going in but let's not imagine it's going to have a payoff anytime soon so this is for the longer term future of the uk not for the next few years so for next year general what's the outlook looking like for the UK? What are we expecting in terms of growth and in terms of inflation? And again, those certainties and uncertainties for the, for the uh, its trading relationship with Europe. Most economists are predicting similar levels of growth next year, perhaps a slight slowdown compared to this year. One big question for next year is what happens to workers' wages? We've seen very little pickup in wage growth despite much higher inflation. And the question next year, particularly for monetary policy, is whether we will see a pickup in wages that will prompt a further rise in interest rates. In terms of the UK's future trading relationship with Europe, that's clearly a big, important question for the long-term future of the UK economy. We're going to see those trade talks start in the new year, but obviously there's still a long way to go into getting any of that kind of long-term certainty. And finally, Chris, how do you think Philip Hammond has done this year as Chancellor? That he's obviously he had two big fiscal events, um, the budget, which Gemma mentioned in November, which went pretty up pretty much as as bad as it could have in the circumstances. It didn't backfire. There were no policies that unraveled. But obviously, earlier in the year, before the general election, there was the budget with the proposed change to national insurance contributions that unraveled very quickly and I think caused quite a lot of political damage to the government and its momentum going into that election. So in terms of his perspective, thumbs up or thumbs down? I think broadly thumbs up. I mean, he'll be very pleased to get to the end of year still as Chancellor. That He was being predicted to get the sack for many months of this year, both before the election when it was clear had the election gone more favourably and Theresa May's uh, 
direction that he would have been sacked and in the run-up to the budget as well there were a lot of noises off so just getting to the end of the year I think is a success nothing's gone horribly wrong this year if he can do that again next year he'll be delighted well I think getting to the end of the year is something we can all be very thankful for that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics the last of 2017 thank you very much to George Robert Jim Chris Gemma and John for joining us we'll be back in 2018 to pick up a politics where we left off. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Madison Derbyshire. So until next time, thank you for listening and have a very happy Christmas. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.